Welcome back to Mark's Madness, now part of Chunkaluta. This was the worst choice ever. Please don't <laughs> fucking continue. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was because we're reading in Italian. Prez, that's We make good cue. choices on Mark's Madness. You're the, you're the token Italian. We're reading Gramsci um, and us by by a guy who's not Gramsci. <laughs> and he's not Italian. He's still Italian? No, no he's, he's not Italian. Italian. Yeah, he's not even Italian. So, you know, this is stolen Italian valor. And you can honestly claim, really, that this was reverse racism. Um, Good. Anyway, uh, Prez, uh is there anything we should know before we begin reading this? Uh, so, no. This is just Gramsci and Us. It's by Stuart Hall. This is a good way to kind of get acquainted with his ideas and actually how we can apply his ideas to stuff that's going on today. Um, so I figured this was a good place to begin working with Gramsci. And if you want more explanation about these gentlemen, please go to the previous introduction episode. Otherwise, I believe um, we're ready to uh, do a full episode of reading. Let's kick it off good. Are we ready? I'm I'm ready, but I was thinking, uh, Prez, would do we want to just start off on the reader, word for word? That's up to you guys. Okay, let's do that. Let's do that, but... Uh, you know, uh, since you put this together, Prez, if there's anything where, like, you just want to interject, because... Yeah, tell us to just shut up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll read. You just yep. tell us to shut up, all right? Yep. So I'll start here. This is not a comprehensive exposition of the ideas of Antonio Gramsci, nor a systematic account of the political situation in Britain today. It is an attempt to think aloud about some of the perplexing dilemmas facing the left in the light of from the perspective of Gramsci's work. I do have a question. Why is he writing this in the 10th chapter of his book? Uh, it's a collection of his works. Okay. So this was like a paper he wrote, and then they just okay. dumped it into a book. All uh, right, okay. all right. I was wondering. I do not claim that in any simple way, Gramsci has the answers or holds the key to our present troubles. I do believe that we must think our problems in a Gramscian way, which is different. We mustn't use Gramsci, as we have for so long abused Marx, like an Old Testament prophet who at the correct moment will offer us the consoling and appropriate quotation. And you think that's just Old Testament prophets. You should hear modern Christians. <laughs> um, we can't pluck up this Sardinian from his specific and unique political formation, beam him down at the end of the 20th century, and ask him to solve our problems for us, especially since the whole thrust of his thinking was to refuse this easy transfer of generalizations from one conjecture, nation, or epoch to another. I think some people like to pronounce it epoch, I don't know, a different chunk of time. I say epoch, too. <laughs> Uh, the thing about Gramsci is that that really transformed my own way of thinking about politics is the question which arises from his prison notebooks, that 30-volume thing that we said only three are in English. 
Um, if you look at the classic texts of Marx and Lenin, you are led to expect a revolutionary uh, ep- epochal historical development emerging from the end of the First World War onwards. And indeed, events did give considerable evidence that such development was occurring. Gramsci belongs to this proletarian moment. It occurred in Turin in the 1920s and other places where people like Gramsci, in touch with the advanced guard of the industrial working class, then at the very forefront of modern production, thought that if only the managers and politicians would get out of the way, the class of proletarians could run the world, take over the factories, seize the whole machinery of society, materially transform it, and manage it economically, uh, socially, culturally, and technically. Is Turin's a place in Italy? Yes. All right, just making sure. This is for the, the... Really dumb people. Like I, I really want to stress to people when I kept saying I was dumb in the Red Deal, I was being serious. I have like one expertise, and it's indigenous shit. After that, <laughs> I'm pretty fucking stupid. Okay. Um. Anyway, the truth about the 1920s is that the proletarian moment very nearly came off. Just before and after the First World War, it really was touch and go as to whether under the leadership of such a class, the world might not have been transformed, as Russia was in 1917 by the Soviet Revolution. This was the moment of the proletarian perspective on history. What I have called Gramsci's question in the notebooks emerges in the aftermath of that moment. With the recognition that history was not going to go that way, especially in the advanced industrial capitalist societies of Western Europe, Gramsci had to confront the turning back, the failure of that moment, the fact that such a moment, having passed, would never return in its old form. And I do want us to to simmer on that again. It's not like that moment won't return again, but it will never return in its old form. You don't just get a redo of history. We learn lessons from history and apply them as they fit to us today. They're not one for one redo on anything. I'd say we are like in a close reminiscence finally of that same question, right? And I find it interesting Mm -hmm. to be reading Gramsci, if this is the characterization, somebody who's like a scholar of Gramsci is sort of giving him, right? Like it, it makes me excited to read more just because, the only things I've ever read of Gramsci's is stuff Prez gave to me, and it's mostly actually been like derivatives of Gramsci, like uh, which derivatives of derivatives, I should say. It was the alternative to all share Polances. 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 I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> uh, anyway, anything anyway. to add, Prez? No, I'm just sitting here like that sickos me. Like. Should I take over? Have, have you read enough, David? No, I, I can take over. I just thought you guys had more to say. Um, Gramsci I only here, have stupid things to interject. It's just yeah, to break but up your voice. That's fine. Uh, sorry, Gramsci, Gramsci here came face to face with the revolutionary character of history itself. When a conjecture unrolls, there is no going back. History shifts gears. The terrain changes. You are in a new moment. You have to attend violently with all the pessimism of the intellect at your command to the discipline of the conjecture. Oh, and I've actually heard Parenti say pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will or whatever. That's right from Gramsci's notebooks. Yeah. 
But should we say what a conjecture is, or should we just assume everyone knows? Sure, it? let's say I what know. it is that's, for that's people important. who think they know what it means and might not <laughs> know what it means. Now that you mention it, so instance and conjecture are used interchangeably both in Gramsci and people who talk about Gramsci. They are at their most simplest just the specific moment in time that we're examining. So, like, even the U.S. in two thousand eight. Oh, like is a different that. instance than the U.S. is today. That's useful because I feel like there's a lot of disagreements. I won't even necessarily they say they're disagreements, but there's a lot of Twitter debate that comes out of people not understanding which instance is being addressed at which time or not addressing instances in their entirety you know, how we got mm-hmm. to that instance. Like there's an assumption made that, you know, how we got there, but then we are proven over and over again. Some people just seem to forget the last five years. So, <laughs> well, you know, also there's, there's um, uh, this insistence for people to want to freeze time uh, where they see the roots of something. And that explains the nature of it very, very well, right? Like we see the roots of the American project and see how it's colonial and and in servitude of the bourgeois, but then they don't want to watch that, that modernize, watch the evolution of that process, watch historical materialism actually process through history. And so they'll see things like racism being created as a justification in colonialism, and they'll never apply that racism is at the heart a very major part, if not as, as big as anything else in the base because it, it fits into superstructure. And so they don't realize how much it's held on to things like, you know, the socialist revolutions could have happened a couple of times in this country and what got leaned on, right? What, what toppled reconstruction, what led everything into a redlined new deal? Uh, why, you know, it's, it's racism. It was, it's okay to, to, pillage and what makes white people forget about the indigenous side of things mm-hmm. <laughs> genetics yeah genetics. You- sorry david i had to, i had to I had. <laughs> um but it, you know i mean what where does redlining come from why does people think you know a welfare state is is you know the definition of socialism and wasn't done explicitly to raise up a white class on further colonized people and satisfy them so that there was a waking army to defend capital even if it was a modern modified capital that was all you know to benefit people based on race white supremacy is the construct colonialism is the is is the entire you know structure right so i think that it's important to note that when we're talking everything you're saying is right but when we're talking about instance and conjecture uh he stewart hall actually writes in a different paper if i'm remembering right he says that the most important thing about gramsci is his emphasis on difference so if we're looking at why the moment is this way and, and how racism is, is the thing underlying things, when we're talking about the current instance, it's acknowledging that all of these things are there in the background and have been forever and, and you know that overused term racial capitalism and all of that bullshit. But it's looking at how is racism different today than even 10 years ago? Or how is it different today than 100 years ago? And how does that influence the material conditions of organizers and and everyone around? Um, So I think that's like a very, and this is part of the reason why he's messy and that's sometimes a good thing. 
um, it requires a lot of, of uh, teasing out things that are happening. I'm going to offer the indigenous perspective on all of this throughout this. And, you know, maybe, maybe I might be interpreting it wrong, but you know, when, when I'm hearing this, it's like the differences are important, like, especially with indigenous perspectives, I am not speaking for Cherokee people. I am not speaking for Anishinaabe people. I'm speaking for my people. And there are some things that are p- applicable across lines, but what are particulars, right? are very important to stress because you're going to have a society that tends towards less centralization with my people. It's just that they hate the overburdening of too much centralization. They like to have a lot of say, a lot of independence, you know, whereas the Anishinaabe or Haudenosaunee, they do tend towards a more centralized society, you know, and these are going to be vast differences that you can't copy and paste over large swaths of land, especially if we're talking about actual national liberation from a Marxist perspective, at least highlighted in texts such as left-wing communism, national question, fucking what is to be done. Uh, I recommend listening to the most recent decolonized buffalo episode i think it's like 135 or something like that and they have a bunch of quotes for you since you guys don't want to read um and i guess jumping back on the the gramsci reader in addition and this is one of the main reasons why his thought is so pertinent to us today he had to face the capacity of the right specifically of european fascism to hegemonize that defeat So here was a historic reversal of the revolutionary project, a new historical conjecture, and a moment which the right, rather than the left, was able to dominate. This looks like a moment of total crisis for the left, when all the reference points, the predictions, have been shot to bits. The political universe, as you have come to inhabit it, collapses. I don't want to say that the left in Britain is in exactly the same moment, Um, and when was this that this section is out of written. This paper came out of the 1980s. He okay, this so this thing. is right during yeah. Thatcher. Okay, yeah, yeah, this okay. is during That's Thatcher. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, dark times. Jesus. Yeah, there's... <laughs> he actually... Like watching the start. Yeah. Oof. He writes about how the, the, how the how the Labor Party, f- like, fucked up responding to Thatcherism. Now we're stuck with it forever in one in another one. Mm, okay, so yeah, this 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 is someone with their, their head square on their shoulders, so... Um, they definitely I, weren't wrong. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say that the left in Britain is exactly the same moment, but I do hope you recognize certain strikingly similar features because it's the similarity between those two situations that makes the question of the prison notebook so seminal in helping us to understand what our condition is today. Gramsci gives us not the tools with which to solve the puzzle, but the means with which to ask the right kinds of questions about the politics of the 1980s and 1990s. He does so by directing our attention unswervingly to what is specific and different about the moment. He always insists on the attention to difference. It's a lesson which the left in Britain has yet to learn. We too tend to think that the right is not... not only always with us, but is always exactly the same. The same people with the same interests, thinking the same thoughts. 
We are living through the transformation of British conservatism, its partial adaptation to the modern world via the neoliberal and monetarist revolutions. Thatcherism has reconstructed conservatism and the conservative party. The hard-faced, utilitarian, petty bourgeois businessmen are now in charge, not the grouse-shooting, hunting, and fishing classes. And yet, though those transformations are changing the political terrain of struggle before our very eyes, we think the differences don't have any real effect on anything. It still feels more left-wing to say the old ruling class politics goes on in the same old way. Gramsci, on the other hand, knew that the difference and specific, or knew that difference and specificity mattered. So instead of asking what would Gramsci say about Thatcherism, we should simply attend to this riveting of Gramsci to the notion of difference, to the specificity of a historical conjecture, how different forces come together conjuncturally to create the new terrain on which different politics must form up. That is the intuition that Gramsci offers us about the nature of political life from which we can take the lead. I want to say what I think the lesson of Gramsci, lessons of Gramsci are in relation, first of all, to Thatcherism and the project of the New Right, and second, in terms of crisis on the left. Here, I'm foregrounding only the sharp edge of what I understand by Thatcherism. I'm trying to address the opening from the mid-1970s onwards of a new political project on the right. By a project, I don't mean, as Gramsci warned, a conspiracy. I mean the construction of a new agenda, the constitution of a new force in British politics. Mrs. Thatcher always aimed, not for a short electoral reversal, but for a long historical occupancy of power. At occupancy of power has not simply was not simply about commanding the apparatuses of the state. Indeed, the project was organized in the early stages in opposition to the state, which in the Thatcherite view had been deeply corrupted by the welfare state and by the Keynesianism and had thus helped to corrupt British people. And now there's we were talking about similarities and particularisms. Um, there's something that that should be familiar should should ding a similarity, um, even though it has a little different roots in the United States with uh, neoliberalism and the whole hating the government until they are the government from the right. Well, right. So, like uh, one thing, like I, I watch these libs listen to Alex Jones a lot on Knowledge Fight, and uh, they're always like. Oh, he, he's against totalitarianism unless the state's on his side. And it's like, uh-huh. That's, that's class politics, buddy. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Everyone is against power until you're the ones in power. And then you need to wield it. That's kind of how that shit works. That's, yep. That's old Engels, uh, you know, on authoritarianism type stuff there, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this guy is, of course, an anarchist. Whatever. Well. I mean, part of that, too, is that mention he did a couple paragraphs left that we just think that the, the right is just this unending block of the same kind of people with the same interests and the same thought. Like, the right is changes. so interesting. I mean, like, yeah. I'm, and I, I mean, I'm sure it's very much different from when I was growing up. Like, I'm sure the prevalence of QAnon and shit has only gotten worse 
since I have mm. not had to deal with right wingers. The thing is, is I've been able. My dad joined a union, and his life's been way better. So that helped me. And then everything that was shitty with his union, I was able to point out that Lennon points out how we can't rely on trade unionism. Blah 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 blah. blah. You know, like <laughs> writes about that too. Oh, um, perfect. But like you know, it's very easy to get a Trumper on board with the Marxist project as soon as you could bridge these divides and he had a material reality in front of him, right? The left has this very academic, pretentious uh, way of thinking about the right, that they are just one group of people, but they're one group of people who are all stupid. And if they actually understood how things are working, they wouldn't be on the right anymore. Totally it's not that they don't understand. Analysis. It's usually that they got misled somewhere, right? Like they had a different word for what, like a lot of times people say globalist instead of imperialist now, right? And when you say globalist, it's like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, because all of a sudden then you're then you're walking into to mass anti-Semitism. And, and there's a level of that. There's also a level of people that are just lying through their teeth and wouldn't change their mind anyway from their own interests. And yet, in well, the liberal perspective, on YouTube that said it authoritatively, right? Sure, sure. And so, in the the liberal perspective, the 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 corrupt right and the misled right are are the same thing. And the misled right are someone that you know you're just gonna aha and look down on and and sneer at and fact check, you know, into into submission instead of being like, okay. You know, let's care a lot more about the victims of this racism, but assume, assuming this person's willing to learn, maybe we can guide them right in that sense, which is a whole different animal than either goodwill or outright reject. Well, when we look at like January 6th, right, like uh, the big thing about the commission is they weren't able to like prove that all these different parties were working together. And this is a lot of it comes out of this event in the 90s known as the uh, Mountain. Uh, Rocky Mountain Rendezvous, where like the militia movement and a lot of right wing extremists got together and basically said, we need to have a leaderless resistance so that way we can't be uh, picked off easily. Right. And so, uh, you, you, you know, you have like the Michigan militia is still very prominent today. So in January 6th, you had the Michigan militia was a huge part. And even the initial testing of the idea, because a lot of people forget that earlier uh, in like 29, it was either like t- late 2019 or early 2020, they had fucking um, invaded the Lansing, Lansing State Capitol building. And it's like, no doubt these people who also had a plan to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer are going to go and do something bigger. Because, like, they just walked in and everybody was like, hi. Like, nobody left. Nothing happened. So, like, they knew exactly what to expect, you know? I mean, like, I don't oh, know. And they had cop buddies letting them in the side door, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, well, yeah. I mean, there's... <laughs> they had inside connections. There's arguments. But, like, uh, I don't know. They're not convincing arguments in my book. I think yeah. the police were very much aligned with the Proud Boys and shit, which are the actors. Those are the serious actors. They had, had yeah. stashes of guns outside of the city limits of Washington, D.C. to go get and delivered to them if shit hit the fan. You know, they had 
walkie talkies. They had people ready to do that action, you know. Um, and they had uh, several people that they had been going on to the like shows of and stuff invited to these uh, to host several different rallies at the same time. Um, and then Trump ended up joining one of the rallies uh, and wanted to lead everybody to the Capitol or whatever, uh, but wasn't able to, uh, <laughs> uh, and, like, because he got in his car and he wanted to go to the Capitol building. And instead, they brought him to the bunker. Uh, so, like, you know, you like, we literally almost saw, as Caleb Moppin put it, uh, a, a, a color revolution here in domestic soil, except he blames anybody who's a person of color when in reality it's the MAGA fucking dipshits that he supports. It's never a good day when you're saying this, Caleb, Mop- Caleb Moppin puts it. Oh, yeah, I'm just throwing shade. Yep. Um, so jumping back in the reading, uh, Thatcherism came into existence in content, uh, contestation, constellation, constant, what? Oh, contestation, contestation, like being contested against it. Like, (laughs) I was like, I don't think it's constellation. No, Uh, contestation with the old Keynesian welfare state with social democratic statism, which in, uh, statism i should say which in its view had dominated the 1960s thatcherism's project was to transform the state in order to restructure society to decenter to displace the whole post-war formation to reverse the political culture which had formed the basis of the political settlement the historic compromise between labor and capital which had been in the place from 1945 onwards. The depth of the reversal aimed for was profound. A reversal of the ground rules of that settlement, of the social alliances which underpinned it, and the values which made it popular. I don't mean the attitudes and values of the people who write books. I mean the ideas of the people who simply in ordinary everyday life have to calculate how to survive, how to look after those who are closest to them. That, that is this is just real quick. That is a perfect summary of what Gramsci's idea of common sense and hegemony are. Oh, awesome. Okay, can we highlight that then? Um cuz Yeah, literally like common sense is literally if you ask any old schmuck on the street what do they think should happen regarding a certain thing, 9 out of 10 times you're going to get about the same answer and that's common sense. Which is a lot different. Uh, can you kind of explain the difference between like a Lockean and Gramsci and a conceptualization of common sense? Yeah. So the common sense we have uh, that we just think of, like it's common sense to not put your hand on a hot pan. Um, that is not the kind of common sense. And we even use that language when we talk about like, you know, liberals or Republicans, they're not using their common sense. We think of it as, as like the way of structured thinking that can lead to the right answers to something. Um, common sense for Gramsci is exactly this. It's, it is literally the sense of common, sense in the common. It's the common conception held by people about a, a given thing. This is what we think about Catholics. This is what we think about Italians. 
this is how we this is what we think about whether or not pizza is a sandwich. Um, is it? It is. I'm not getting into that right now. Okay. <laughs> well, I thought we were going to have this argument live. Well, when there are arguments, then there's a there's a contestation. There's an issue with the common sense that's breaking down. I'm just saying, how do you involve the conceptualization of a Chicago style pizza into the rest of the families of pizza? It's not part of the same family. That's it is answer. though. It is though. Oh my god. Anyway. Um, anyway. But no, I mean, you know, more more applicable um, example being like common sense isn't isn't just don't stick your finger in in the light socket. You know, it's in 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 the uh, Gramscian sense. It's more like everybody knows North Korea is a dictatorship, and and it's not a matter like of say, fact, it's a matter of what's accepted. Oh, okay. That is what is meant by saying that Thatcherism aimed for a reversal in ordinary common sense. The common sense of the English people have been constructed around the notion that the last war had erected a barrier between the bad old ways of the 1930s and now. The welfare state had come to stay. We'd never go back to using the criterion of the market as the sole measure of the people's needs, the needs of society. There would always have to be some additional incremental institutional force, the state representing the general interest of society, to bring to bear against, to modify, the market. I'm perfectly well aware that socialism was not inaugurated in 1945. I'm talking about the taken-for-granted, popular base of welfare social democracy, which formed the real concrete ground on which any English socialism worth the name had to be built. Thatcherism was a project to engage, to contest that project, and wherever possible to dismantle it and to put something new in place. It entered the political field in a historic context, contest not just for power, but for popular authority, for hegemony. It is not a project, this confuses the left no end, which is simultaneously regressive and progressive. Regressive because it is a project. Did I say it is not? Anyway. Anyway. Regressive because, in a certain crucial respects, it takes us backwards. You couldn't be going anywhere else but backwards to hold up before the British people at the end of the 20th century. The, the idea that the best the future holds is for them to become, for a second time, eminent Victorians. It's deeply regressive, ancient, and archaic. But don't, don't misunderstand it. It's also a project of modernization. It's a form of regressive modernization. Because at the same time, Thatcherism had its beady eye fixed on one of the most profound historical facts about the British social formation, that it had never, ever properly, properly entered the era of modern bourgeois civilization. It never made that transfer to modernity. It never institutionalized, in a proper sense, the civilization and structures of advanced capitalism, what Gramsci called Fordism. 
and maybe we should take a second to explain Fordism, or is it going to go into that? Uh, it won't go into that. Fordism, so two things. Fordism is just Gramsci wrote about, and this was also how people like communists in the 1920s talked about the structure of the factory in the U.S. People called America like the pinnacle of capitalist development because it was this super strict, and not necessarily in a good way, it was this super segmented, regimented factory line that we we know as like Ford inventing or whatever. Um, he's talking about how Britain never really entered uh, modern bourgeois civilization, meaning that we still have monarchists in Britain. Um, bourgeois civilization is the French Revolution. It's the total abolition of the monarchy and replacement of it with a demo, uh, you know, bourgeois democratic state. Um, it's still holding on to some things of feudalism. See, the face I made was specifically because I'm from Detroit and I went, Fordism. Eh. <laughs> um, but no, that's a good point because I think there's even a rule where like the the royal family can dissolve Congress or Parliament. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, disband everybody. Yeah, disband all of it. So, I mean, it's very much... Uh, when they they talk about it being a parliamentary monarchy, it's the the, the emphasis is on monarchy. Parliamentary is just the adjective. Well, I try to explain to them. It's like you you don't really have a constitution. You have a constitutional monarchy, which kind of means yeah. The monarchy <laughs> takes a little bit of a precedent. The yeah the. the the uh, king and queen have written up a nice fancy paper to say, we'll follow these rules if you guys are good. Yeah, and if we feel like it. Yeah, yeah, you know, you keep behaving, then then we'll put stickers on the sticker chart for you. Don't make me rip it up. We'll meet right. you in the middle. <laughs> um, but I also, I, you know, a lot of that should immediately click with people too, because again, you know, and, and, and I guess we'll get into this more is where I, you know, I need to get more Gramsci as far as like, differences and not over applying things but some of of comparing what's different is knowing what's the same and a lot of that should sound very familiar with a lot of the moves of the right currently right where you know in one hand it's regressive on another hand it's something totally new like making it illegal to call someone racist um and or even queuing that i mean i mean yeah they've always been there and there's a lot of um medieval or you know anti-semitic roots or mm-hmm. you know what have you but there's you can track these things and it's almost eclectic right but it, it, it forms this new thing that encompasses everything specifically like originally you didn't have anti-mooners mixing with the you know freaking mole people mm-hmm. people <laughs> <laughs> the flat earthers and all that all gelling together. Yeah, um, here we are. Yeah, but also um, something else too, and 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 back on the the Republican, you know, destroying public schools. That's been a, a goal of the right since Reconstruction, right? That's that's where the whole big government anti taxes thing comes from, where they they co opted uh, the the seventeen seventy six. Uh, revolution language, even misapplied to compared to that, to try to do this big government, small government stuff. They've been after public schools for a long time, and you've seen different strategies uh, from you know homeschooling people, 
um, to, you know, charter school attempts more recently. And now it's just an all out attack of the content of schools, not just a regular monopolization through, you know, McGraw Hill and stuff, writing the textbooks, but outright like banning books and, and things like that, making it hell, making it schools, you know, to the point where you're so busy defending these factors, you've lost defending the schools themselves as they've been consistently underfunded. So continuing on after Fordism, uh, it uh, never transformed its old industrial and political structures. It never became a second capitalist industrial revolution power in the way that the U.S. did, and by another route, the Prussian route, Germany and Japan did. Britain never undertook that deep transformation which at the end of the 19th century remade both capitalism and the working classes. Consequently, Mrs. Thatcher knows, as the left does not, that there is no serious political project in Britain today which is not also about constructing a politics and an image of what modernity would be like for our people. And Thatcherism, in its regressive way, drawing on the past, looking backwards to former glories rather than forwards to a new epoch, has inaugurated the project of reactionary modernization. There is nothing more crucial in this respect than Gramsci's recognition that every crisis is also a moment of reconstruction, that there is no destruction which is not also reconstruction, that historically nothing is dismantled without also attempting to put something new in its place, that every form of power not only excludes but produces something. And I, I should say this is not just, you know, Gramsci's... Uh, you know, observation of the right. This is something that we need to keep in mind again uh, as a left. When we talk about revolution, and we've talked about it many times during the Red Deal, right? Um, you know, I use the analogy of stealing and, and getting out being more important than getting in, even though, you, of course, you can't do it without getting in, right? Um, what you build in its place is more important than toppling the state. You just can't build anything unless that state is toppled. Well, on top of that, too, if anyone's ever done organizing, you'll have found that when you talk to people, you have a much easier time getting them to understand what you're saying or getting them on your side when you present them an alternative instead of just walking up to someone and going, oh, you're racist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, that's is part of, which is part of the outcry that we have from liberals, even where they're saying that we we're not we can't be too aggressive with things because they don't want an alternative presented, but they don't want to alienate people by both presenting an alternative, but also by telling them the things that they're doing is wrong. Yeah. Well, right. that, that's like the Pat Soches is they don't want to acknowledge that they're being racist and they don't want to acknowledge that we have offered an alternative, you know, like there, yeah, is there there'll be people using that in bad faith. Yeah. And they'll be like, you're just insulting me. They, I mean, pearl clutching is very much a thing. But the reason pearl clutching has some, um, you know, plausible deniability and has any social pull at all is because there are also people that would be on board, wouldn't do that in bad faith. And the difference is not not criticizing or being nice or letting people be racist. You know, we've talked about solidarity is an injury to one and is an injury to all. A victory for one is a victory for all, right? Every time racism occurs, I don't care if you're in the group that is victimized or a victim. That's an injury to all if we are revolutionaries, right? Um, anytime any form of bigotry happens, that's that's true. Um, 
And so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that doesn't mean like let people go, you know, on their racism. That means that 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 squishy middle that gives them, you know, the plausible deniability, the difference is offering an alternative. And when you offer that alternative, people go, oh, and that is amenable. And that's also why people try to bash socialism and things like, you know, Stalin and the USSR and the DPRK and stuff gets demonized so that the alternative that you are offering seems worse or not to be an alternative at all, even though that isn't true. And that's why we defend existing socialism beyond just solidarity. Well, I can't remember which comedian I heard it from, right? But they're like, whenever you're talking to conspiracy theorists, right, there's no point in trying to convince them they're wrong. Instead, you should be like, oh, you believe in the moon when they say that the moon landing's fake, you know, like <laughs> offer a, a, a different conspiracy theory. But when I heard that, I was like, well, that's dumb. What if you offered them what sounds like a conspiracy theory that actually does explain what's going on? <laughs> and then that was pretty. Oh, you listen to the CIA? Well, let me tell you. All right, it's like, uh, well, you know, UFO stuff is introduced into the populace to kind of disguise Cold War shit. Like, it's bullshit. Like, Phoenix Lights? It's Operation Snowbird. It's just warthogs flying through the sky in that corridor. Sweet. Jump on it. (laughs) That is an entirely new conception of crisis. End of power. When the left talks about crisis, all we see is capitalism disintegrating and us marching in and taking over. We don't understand that the disruption of the normal functioning of the old economic, social, cultural order provides the opportunity to reorganize it in new ways, to restructure and refashion, to modernize and move ahead. Uh, It's almost like he's describing a power vacuum, I feel like there. Is that accurate? Yes. But also the it's kind of what we were just talking about, the when something goes away you need to have a replacement for it. Right. So then everyone's struggling for that. Well, right, but that you know, that the idea is to prevent a vacuum on our on our end. But Yeah. He it seems like he's acknowledging that even trying to do that. There's still going to be points where we're not going to be able to, especially due to the land mass, fully seize the country in an effective means. Well, so he's not talking about political. So, like, he's talking about this in in the context of a parliamentary struggle. Oh. Um, He's not talking about armed conflict. All right, so I'm reading too much into this. I get it. (laughs) He literally means that when social democracy is dying, which there was that crisis in the 1970s um there is going to be a space that people can fill and take it over and thatcherism took it over because the left didn't seem to understand that they had to present some new alternative to it they couldn't just say well if we just get things going again we'll get back where we were um and that's kind of the issue we like even today with the democrats in the u.s like there's a power struggle going on where the right is getting more and more aggressive because there is another crisis of capitalism. And, you know, we have the DSA essentially saying a bunch of reformist stuff that's even weaker than social democratic parties. But um, there's no real attempt to craft a coherent narrative of how things should go instead. And that is where the left and the right differs in that moment of Thatcherism. 
in the context of now, I would disagree in that indigenous people definitely have an idea of where things should go. So if the left doesn't, I would take the time to learn what we have to offer instead of just saying it's unrealistic. That sounds unrealistic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, if necessary, of course, at the cost of allowing vast numbers of people in the Northeast, the Northwest, in Wales and Scotland, in the mining communities and the devastated industrial heartlands, in the inner cities and elsewhere, to be consigned to the historical dustbin. That is the law of capitalist modernization. Uneven development. Organized disorganization. Face to face with the dangerous new political formation, the temptation is always ideologically to dismantle it, to force it to stand still by asking the classic Marxist question, who does it really represent? Now, usually when the left asks that old classic Marxist question in the old way, we are really not really asking a question. We are making a statement. We already know the answer. Of course, the right represents the ruling class in power. It represents the occupancy by capital of the state, which is nothing but its instrument. Bourgeois writers produce bourgeois novels. The conservative party is the ruling class at prayer, etc., etc. This is Marxism as a theory of the obvious. The question delivers no new knowledge, only the answer we already knew. It's a new kind of game. Political theory as a trivial pursuit. In fact... I got a wedge. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> In fact, the reason we need to ask the question is because we really don't know. It really is puzzling to say in any simple way whom Thatcherism represents. Here is the perplexing phenomenon of a petty bourgeoisie ideology which represents and is helping to reconstruct both national and international capital. In the course of representing corporate capital, However, it wins the consent of very substantial sections of the subordinate and dominated classes. What is the nature of this ideology, which can inscribe such a vast range of different positions and interests in it, and which seems to represent at a little bit of it? Wait, seems to represent a little bit of everybody. For Make no mistake, a tiny bit of all of us is also somewhere inside the Thatcherite project. Of course, we're all 100% committed. But every now and then, Saturday mornings, perhaps just before the demonstration, we go to Sainsbury and, sorry, we have a little place called Salisbury that I think of, but... Anyway, Sainsbury, and we're just a tiny bit of a Thatcherite subject. How do we make... Oh, oh, I, w- I was going to say that was probably a good spot to to wrap up. Oh, yeah, it sounds we're like about we're, we're about yeah. at the end, and we're about to dig into you know uh, Thatcherism as something that oops, as something that can. Um, you know, gain popularity uh, amongst the subjugated classes. And I think that'd be a good spot to dig in next time. I just want to make one quick little note about that. 
that snide joke that we just finished with. Sainsbury's is like a Walmart. <laughs> yeah, no. So Salisbury is a little tiny uh, town that used to be called Swede Town back when uh, America was a little more ethnically segregated, but they would say diverse. <laughs> is that where the stakes come from? You would think. Anyway, so thank you all for listening to another episode of Mark's Madness. If you enjoyed or want to complain about anything we said, uh, please feel free to do it at the email at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com, bandsandturtleisland at gmail.com, or chunkaluta1973 at gmail.com. Along with that, you can reach us at the Twitters at, at marksmadnesspod. Uh, my personal Twitter is at bandsisland. Or you can reach the network at Twitter at at Chunkaluta1973. Um, however, you know, if you need a copy of this reader and want to go ahead of us um, to write notes or whatever and try to kind of compare our conversations or whatever, you know, your kind of goals are when we explain the goals in the uh, what's it called uh, uh, disclaimer, uh, you can do that. And uh, by either A, Coming to the Discord, the official Marks Madness Discord, which you can find at the Twitter, uh, or B, by joining the Patreon for $1 or more. At the $3 tier, you get access to a free t-shirt when it comes out. So I recommend joining that tier before it's too late. Um, other than that, uh, you know, um, we have uh, a lot of other shows joining us, like uh, the red game table. Uh, if you were fans of the old pearls, the round tables, tabletop role playing series, or perhaps you like decolonized Buffalo, or there's even new podcasts coming out that, uh, maybe you're listening to, uh, spinoff series and you like somebody that was talking on it and they have a series coming up. You can find all that out at the Patreon or at one of the many places I mentioned. And uh, you can support us in that way. Otherwise, you know, if you just go rate and comment on your local or favorite podcatcher, uh, it also really helps the show get noticed. Did I yeah, do everything? I think, I think you did it. Um, obviously, we said, you know, Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com, Bands Island at gmail.com, Chuck Alluge 1973 at uh, at and then the same three things for Twitter, um, and that's all I've got. Do you have anything, Prez? Uh, I don't. All right, then this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is David. I'm Shimani too, <laughs> and I'm Prez again. And we will talk to all of you next week. Bye. I just terrible.